As House of Pain once said, the cream of the crop will rise to the top. And over the weekend, the top dog in the biggies did just that, getting a road win that took nearly an entire generation to get. I'll talk about that and so much more here on this brand new episode of The Igloo. What's up, everybody? Hope you enjoyed the weekend as much as I did. Just absolute insanity across the Big East. And even though I mentioned that a team went on the road and won for the first time in nearly a generation, I think the most surprising result happened just a few hours before that happened when Georgetown, without Mac McClung, and as the game went on, also losing starting center Omer Yurtseven, who was their second leading scorer and also their leading rebounder, you would think that losing those two guys, you would think that DePaul would have enough to win. But for some reason, the Blue Demons just find ways to lose games, and that's what they did in the nation's capital on Saturday afternoon as the Blue Demons had a big lead on Georgetown, but the Hoyas somehow came away with a home win over the Blue Demons by the final of 76-72 to that hands DePaul their 10th Big East loss of the season, which... By the way, if you're keeping score at home now, that clinches their 13th consecutive losing season in conference play. That's 13 years in a row. And that is not good. That is really, really bad. And it's disappointing considering how good this DePaul team was in their non-conference slate. Beating teams like Iowa on the road. Beating Texas Tech in Chicago. And since then, it's really been all downhill with their only conference win coming at home against Butler three weeks ago. And now here they are sitting in the basement of the Big East at 1-10. And, and since Devin Gage, their backup point guard, is now on the shelf for the rest of the season, this Blue Demons team is in big trouble. And I'll be shocked if they are able to win more than one more conference game for the rest of the year. I'm sorry, I'm just telling the truth now. Because Devin Gage at least gave them some depth at the point guard position. Outside of Charlie Moore on their active roster, they don't have another point guard. You can't win games if you only got one point guard. Okay, okay, maybe you can, but you gotta at least have a somewhat decent backup. DePaul doesn't have that. So again, the Blue Demons, as far as I'm concerned, I think they are in big, big trouble. Because if they couldn't pull this one out against Georgetown, what's going to make me think that they're going to win any more conference games the rest of the year? Seriously. Just something to think about. So I mentioned DePaul securing their 13th consecutive losing season in conference play. Meanwhile, Seton Hall was looking to win at Villanova in Philadelphia for the first time in twice that span, 26 years. The drought was now coming on 
Again, the last time they had won in Philly, February 26th of 1994. And Seton Hall got out to a great start, up 20-10 around halfway through the first half. But then Villanova went on a big run, outscoring the Pirates for the remainder of the half, 21-7, to go into the locker room with a 31-27 lead. And if you're, if you're a Seton Hall fan, you're probably, if you're in the arena or just watching it and wherever you might be, you're probably just thinking, you're like, oh shit, here we go again. Like, this had all the signs of Villanova just turning on the Jets and turning this into a route like they had been for the last quarter century. But this Seton Hall team would just not be denied. And even with Miles Powell going out with his fourth foul with about nine and a half minutes to go, Seton Hall hunkered down. And Miles Powell even said that that was their best defensive unit that was going to be taking the court coming out of the timeout. And they stepped up big time. And the two big stars that unexpectedly came out and delivered in a lot of clutch spots were, I mean, it really it was three of them. Quincy McKnight, Jared Roden, and Mamu. Those three guys on top of Miles Powell making the shots that he was able to make, which for him is just, a, you know, your typical normal shot, at least from his perspective. Again, Seton Hall just was able to get that supporting cast to help him out and not have this be a one-man show. And meanwhile, for Villanova, a cold shooting day ends up making quite a big difference. I mean... They struggled mightily just knocking down three-point shots, which was really their bread and butter all season long. Not to mention, Seton Hall actually outscored Villanova, out-rebounded Villanova, excuse me, 43-32. to Jared Roden led the team with 11 rebounds. And I mentioned... Obviously, with the point production, you need you needed that counter, uh, you needed that supporting cast to come out and score, and that they did. Roden had nine off the bench. Shavar Reynolds, normally a defensive stalwart, coming off the bench and he's cemented his place as the backup point guard in this team over Anthony Nelson, and everyone knows him for his, for his defense. But Reynolds had seven big points, including a big three pointer in the second half. And also knocked down all four free throw attempts that he took. And then Quincy McKnight with 14 points and a couple assists to go along with seven rebounds. And then Mamu, 36 minutes, 17 points, eight rebounds, including three on one possession that led to a putback. And he paid homage to someone he refers to as an older brother, Angel Delgado, after he finished that off by delivering his signature double flex after the ball went through the hoop. So again, Seton Hall comes away with the win, and Villanova just 36% from the field, 33% from behind the arc. And again, getting out-rebounded, 43-32, a huge difference maker as the Hall dominated on the glass just a week after they had been out-rebounded by Xavier, 51-22. to And uh, some interesting stats from that Georgetown game. How about a career high, Javon, 
for Javon Blair. 30 points for the junior from Canada. 11 of 18 from the field. And then the Hoys only had two other players in double figures. Yurt 7 with 16 and Terrell Allen with a dozen. But you know who contributed two huge points? George Mirasan. The son of... Uh, George Mirasan, the tallest player to ever play in the NBA, played on the Bullets and the Wizards at seven foot seven. Son's obviously not that tall. I mean, he's a dwarf compared to him at six nine still. But he had a couple big points off the bench. Kudus Wahab in twenty three minutes had six points and eight rebounds. But again, Javon Blair played all forty minutes, eleven of eighteen, four of ten from deep. Again, career high thirty points. And then for the Blue Demons, all five starters in double figures. Another double-double for Paul Reed with 12 points and 13 boards. Romeo Weems with 11. Jalen Coleman-Lance had a team-high 17. And then Charlie Moore and Jalen Butts each with 14 in a losing effort for the Blue Demons. Meanwhile, a shootout in Omaha. Creighton, number 21 in the country, coming off an upset loss on the road at Providence. Came back home to Omaha and... Took down St. John's 94-82 to in a very high-scoring affair. Shockingly, the game high didn't belong to guys like Alexander or Zigorowski. That went to Marcellus Erlington of St. John's with 25 off the bench to go with 10 rebounds and 3 of 4 from distance. Meanwhile, the only starter to score double figures for St. John's was LJ Figueroa with 12. Mustafa Heron chipped in 12 off the bench, but apparently he re-aggravated an ankle injury that is going to keep him out for the rest of the season. That is a big blow for the Red Storm as they lose their second leading scorer and their senior leader, Mustafa Heron. Meanwhile, for Crane, all five starters in double figures, Marcus Zigorowski with 23, a team high. 10 each from Bishop and Balak. 16 each for Jefferson and Alexander. And then off the bench, Denzel Mahoney with 18 points on 7 of 10 shooting, 3 of 5 from deep. And how about this? Creighton, 13 of 28 from behind the arc. And as a team, 35 of 58, which is good for 60%. Meanwhile, they held St. John's to just under 42% from the field, 31 of 74 including 11 of 31 from deep, only good for 35.5%. And a Saturday night showdown in Cincinnati. Xavier held off Providence coming off that upset win over Creighton, like I mentioned. Xavier keeps their hot streak going. That's their third straight victory. They beat the Friars in Cincy 64-58. to And this one was a rock fight. The Friars led by two at the break. But Xavier... Pulls away and wins. Tyreek Jones, another monster effort in the points and rebound category. 14 points, 18 rebounds. 6 of 10 from the field. Zach Fremantle with 11 for the freshman from Teaneck. New Jersey, that is. Paul Scruggs with 13. And then Najee Marshall, although he struggled with 5 points, credit Kiki Tandy for stepping up with 10 off the bench. And how about Bryce Moore with five? The transfer from Western Michigan came up big for the Muskies. Nate Watson led all scorers, though, for Providence with 16 points and seven rebounds on eight of 13 shooting. Alpha Diallo with 14 points. David Duke with a dozen and no other Friars 
scored in double figures. So against Xavier, they win their third straight in a, a true rock fight. Final score on this one again, 64-58. And then Marquette looking for an upset on National Marquette Day on Sunday over number 19 Butler. Coming off that emotional buzzer-beating win over Villanova at Hinkle. And on National Marquette Day, Marquette delivers once again as they routed Butler 76-57. Game high went to Kamar Baldwin with 23 points on 10 of 16 shooting, including 3 of 6 from deep. Bryce Enzi, the only other Bulldog, though, in double figures with 14 points on 6 of 9 shooting. Butler as a team struggled from deep, just 4 of 20 from behind the arc. So outside of Kamar Baldwin, that means the rest of the team was 1 of 14 from behind the arc. Meanwhile, Marquette nearly shot 50% from deep, 11 of 24, while shooting 22 of 51 from the field, right around 43%. Marcus Howard approaching the Big East career scoring record now as he has 17 points in that one, 4 of 11. Three of nine from behind the arc. Kobe McEwen and Brendan Bailey added the supplemental scoring each with 16 points. And Jace Johnson stepping up off the bench. The backup center transfer from Utah with nine points and seven rebounds in just 18 minutes of action. And with that upset, Marquette asserts themselves into the top 25 now coming in at number 18. Butler stays at number 19 after a 1-1 one one week. Creighton falls to number 23 after they were upset at Providence. Meanwhile, Villanova's 0-2 week drops them to number 15. And Seton Hall back in the top 10 after winning at Georgetown and the aforementioned Villanova Wildcats. So, I've got your midweek picks coming up right after this. Got a couple double headers on both CBS Sports Network and FS1. 630-830 blocks featuring a pair of top 25 games. And I'll have my previews and predictions for those games coming up right after this. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Igloo with me, Timmy Ice. Welcome back, folks. Now let's get to the nitty-gritty. A loaded slate on Wednesday with doubleheaders on CBS Sports Network and FS1. Let's start with the 630 games. Uh, starting on CBS Sports Network with Xavier riding a three-game win streak, visiting number 19 Butler. The Bulldogs had that big upset win over Nova in their last home game, but came back down to earth as they were defeated handily by Marquette in Milwaukee on Sunday. And with the Bulldogs back at home, I know Xavier has been obviously playing very well these last three games, and this is the first time these teams are facing this season. And, I I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I think it's 50-50 in terms of where I think these teams stand, at least in league play. I mean, obviously Xavier's come on strong lately. Meanwhile, Butler was off to such a great start this season with their 12-1 non-conference resume. But again, just 6-5 and five in conference since then. But, I mean, it's it really comes down to Hinkle Magic. That's basically it. And I think, considering this is somewhat of a big rivalry game, Xavier and Butler go way back. 
as Midwestern rivals. I mean, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, I mean, they got their beefs between one another. And these two schools, I mean, such similar color schemes as well. Uh, as much as I've loved the way Xavier has played recently, I just don't think they're going to have enough to go into Hinkle Fieldhouse. Much tougher environment than where they were the first two games in this three-game win streak. Seton Hall at the Prudential Center and then Winchester Arena at DePaul. I mean, Hinkle Fieldhouse is another animal, and considering you know the rivalry between these two Midwestern schools, I give the edge to the Bulldogs, and Kamar Baldwin is going to be really tough for the Musketeers to find a way to stop him uh, on the perimeter. Just a 6-1 guy who was just so quick, so good off the dribble, and taking it both inside and out. So in that regards, I'm going to take the Bulldogs, and I'm going to say it's going to be pretty close. I would say no more than a two-possession game. Meanwhile, Creighton and Seton Hall, the Blue Jays number 23 in the country. The Pirates are at number 10. And it's going to be Bill Raftery bobblehead night at the Rock. And the governor is going to be in attendance for it. So I can only imagine how exciting that is going to be. Again, as Bill Raftery will be alongside, of course, the the most hyped broadcaster in the industry, the legendary Gus Johnson, will be joining him on the call on FS1. Now, this is also the first meeting between these two teams this season. Last year, the Pirates swept the Jays, which included a big road win in Omaha, led by the defense of Quincy McKnight and the offense of Miles Powell. Will that trend continue when these two teams match up in Newark? My instincts say yes, and with Seton Hall and their big size that they bring to the table, it might actually, despite Creighton being a much smaller team, I think that that favors Creighton because they're a quicker team and they could use more of that athleticism to push up and down the floor quicker while also being able to use that leaping ability to perform better on the glass. But still, I think Seton Hall is going to be just too much for Creighton in this scenario. But I'll tell you what, it is going to be close. I actually only have the Pirates winning by five, which means if you're if you're going to bet on this, that means you're going to have to take uh, with the over-under against Seton Hall, again, as a six-and-a-half-point favor. That means you take the underdog Jays to cover that spread. But again, I think it's going to be a very close game. It's going to be, I think this is going to be Seton Hall's first legitimate test in terms of stopping the three-point barrage that Creighton can bring to the table. They were able to do that with Villanova, but Creighton is another animal. Their slogan is let it fly, and they do that every single time they take the court. It's going to be really tough for the Blue Jays to find a way to stop that three-headed monster that can just make it rain from deep between Zigorowski, Alexander, and Balak. And it's going to be up to the perimeter guys. Obviously, Miles Powell, but 
obviously the people that we know on defense that are strongest suited uh, to defend outside, Quincy McKnight, and then also Shavar Reynolds coming off the bench. And even at the small forward position, having Miles Kale and Jared Roden defend the small forward position, having to chase Mitch Ballack around all night. Because if there's anything we've learned is that Mitch Ballack is so damn good just catching the ball on the run and making these running jump shots from long distance. And keep in mind, last year, he made 11 three-pointers in a game. 11. And he only missed once. I sure as hell don't think he's going to have that kind of night. But he has been shooting the three ball at a very high clip. And I'll be interested to see, you know, how the duo of Cal and Roden can stifle the junior from Eudora, Kansas. And even if Seton Hall may have to go small and have Reynolds, Powell, and then McKnight out there on the court and have McKnight have the assignment of guarding Mitch Ballack if the other two, Zigorowski and Alexander, aren't shooting as well. And and I say they're a three-headed monster because you never know when any one of those three can have a big night. It could be Zigorowski one night, then Alexander the next. It might be Balak. You never quite know. And and on the scouting report, it's just so unfair to try to expect or anticipate the kind of production that those three could potentially put in. But still, I'm going to take Seton Hall, but only by five. I think Creighton's going to play this Seton Hall team very tough at the Prudential Center. Now, the 8.30 games on CBS Sports Network, St. John's will be at Carneseca hosting Providence. Both of these teams with a 13-11 and 11 record, but in conference play, Providence and St. John's completely different. The Friars are 6-5, and five, the Johnnies are 2-9, and nine, and as I mentioned before, they now will not have Mustafa Heron for the rest of the season. He was their second leading scorer and their senior leader. And now it's going to be up to the rest of the Red Storm to try to pick up the pieces after struggling so far in conference play. Their only wins are against DePaul, who is currently 1-10. So if they would have lost one of those games, they'd be in dead last right now. And they had a chance to get their third conference win last weekend. Not with the Creighton game, but Super Bowl Sunday against Georgetown. They had a huge lead against them, up 17 in the second half, and they just let it slip out of their hands. But something's got to give, man. And for some reason, I feel like St. John's is going to rally as a team without Mustafa and find a way to defend Karnaseka because they had a chance to do that on New Year's Eve against Butler, and they overcame a huge deficit to take the lead, but unfortunately let it get away from them in the final two minutes as they allowed a 7-0 run after being up 58-53 to lose by just two. But now back at Karnaseka, I really believe that St. John's is going to find a way to rally and take down this Providence team 
Akkar in a second, give the St. John's crowd something to cheer about because it's been a lot of moaning and groaning about how Big E's play has gone for this team considering some of the big wins that they've compiled in their non-conference slate, which included an upset over West Virginia in the Garden. And West Virginia is looking like a legitimate two or three seed at the moment. I still think they're more of a four, but I'll leave that up to guys like Lucas Harkins, who I'm definitely looking forward to having back on the show soon uh, to make those decisions and make more accurate predictions. But, I mean, and you also had them winning in San Francisco to end the non-conference schedule against Arizona, who is probably going to be a tournament team as well. And since then, again, St. John's has only beaten DePaul twice. And that's it. But I think they finally are going to break that trend. And I think they're going to get a big win against Providence at Carneseca Arena. And it, it, I'm not saying that they need this one. I mean, you, you obviously want to win every game. But St. John's really, really needs this one if they want any remote chance of just getting their confidence back and to give themselves any hope of continuing to possibly, especially with their schedule coming up, you know, you get Xavier at home, you play Seton Hall on the road, you're, you're also playing at Butler, as well as hosting Marquette at the Garden to end the regular season. You also get Creighton at Carneseca to start the month of March, too. So there are some winnable opportunities for St. John's to get back in the tournament conversation. Obviously, 2-9 and nine in conference, 13-11 overall. Doesn't really help them much. But I will say this. A win like this can get a team's head, you know, back on a swivel. Well, not really back on a swivel, just back on straight, I should say. And just winning will... Just give this team the confidence that it needs to just move forward for the rest of the season. Because I know they're more than capable than rattling off a couple more games to end this season. But right now, I mean, if they lose this one to Providence, I mean, I think they are. And that their tournament homes are basically buried six feet under. So I think St. John's needs to win this one, and I think they will. I think Mike Anderson will instill it upon his guys to make sure they get the job done on their home court this time around. And not to mention, they also played Providence really tough at the dunk last time out back on January the 15th. So exactly four weeks ago, nearly went into the dunk and won a big one, but they only lost by five. And the final score on that one was 76-71. to 71. Now... Finally, Marquette and Villanova at Finneran Pavilion. Marquette stomped Villanova in Milwaukee in early January, and Villanova on a three-game losing streak. I think they're going to be out for retribution in this one. They know they need to get back on track. Is Now they know Seton Hall has a three-game cushion over them with seven games to go. And Villanova's... I think they have to do everything they can. They basically have to win out if they want any shot of 
winning another Big East regular season title. Because right now, Seton Hall's almost secured it. They're pretty damn close to it. You know, being up three games with seven to go, you know, it was, you know, it's a pretty sizable margin in the standings right now. But a win for Villanova, considering that they're in a three-way tie for second in the conference with Marquette, they know they got to get the high ground in the standings over those two teams, considering they've already lost to Marquette this year, as well as they've also lost to Creighton, and that was at home as well. So I think Villanova is going to channel their inner Obi-Wan Kenobi and get the high ground in the standings as they take down Marquette at Finneran Pavilion uh, to round out that Wednesday slate. And I think Villanova is going to give Marquette a taste of their own medicine considering Marquette beat them pretty badly back on January 4th. I think Villanova is going to give them a taste of their own medicine on Wednesday night in the nightcap at Finneran Pavilion on FS1 where Brian Custer and Jim Spinarkle are going to be on the call for that one. I know this has been quite a lengthy episode, but I still got a lot more great content coming up as joining me right after this, one of college basketball Twitter's most prominent users, Jake Atkins, will join me all the way from the Bluegrass State. He'll join me next here on the Igloo and later on here on the Igloo, but I actually have... Chris McManus, a guy I've known for years now, beat writer for Seton Hall since 2014, founder of shoehoops.com. Going to get his perspective on Seton Hall's big win at Villanova and getting some perspective on how he's seeing this team and how they stack up with the greatest Seton Hall, greatest Seton Hall teams to ever be fielded. So I will have Chris McManus on right after this here on the Igloo. Seton Hall has been the story of the Big East this season. The Pirates, again, they haven't won the Big East regular season championship since 1993. It's been 27 long years. And this past weekend, they went on the road and ended quite a lengthy drought, beating Villanova in Philadelphia for the first time since 1994, a 26-year drought. And joining me now, he covered that game and has covered the Pirates for the last six seasons now for ShoeHoops.com, a good friend of mine, Chris McManus. Chris, it is so good to have you on the show, my guy. Hey, Tim. Long time no talk. Nice to uh, see you again. Yeah, it definitely is. I know I'll see you in person in not too long. I'll be in, I'll be in town in a couple weeks for the Seton Hall home game against St. John's, but let's Let's talk about what happened over the weekend. I know you were at the Wells Fargo Center when Seton Hall went in there and took down Villanova, handing the Wildcats their third straight loss. This game was an emotional roller coaster in a lot of ways with a lot of highs and lows, with obviously the biggest high being winning that. Uh, from covering that for Media Row, uh, what were your biggest takeaways from the Pirates' victory in Philly on Saturday? 
Well, I guess starting from the beginning before the uh, arena filled up to over 20,000 when no one was in there, it was pretty – the team was loose, but they were focused um, compared to Villanova. Villanova was a little bit more methodical in their warm-ups, you know, uh, more structured, but Scene Hall was kind of – it was more intense. They were, um, you know, laughing, having fun, but also it was intense. It was more intense than Nova's warm-up, so <clears> – <throat> go it was kind of you had that feeling they can do it but um you know talking about some of those highs and lows yeah I I think the um obviously when Miles picked up his fourth foul that was kind of like you figured everything was gonna slip away at that point I I sure had that feeling and even at the end of the first half when Villanova went on their run it reminded me a lot of the blowout the season before when um you know 80-52 seemed like it was going to get away from them at that point. It was Nova's tempo and all that. So, yeah, it was kind of uh, – it went from zero to 60 pretty quick a few times. And I think the biggest piece is – I mean, obviously, Miles Powell did what Miles Powell is supposed to do. He made those big plays down the stretch, avoided fouling out. Um, but I think the two biggest pieces in this victory – First half, it was Jared Roden, and then the second half was Mamu, and I, I think we're finally getting to see uh, that side of Mamu that we saw before he went down with that broken wrist that was, you know, uh, if I were to put it this way, you know, he was the Robin uh, to Miles, Powell, Miles Powell's Batman. Would you agree with that? Yeah, at first I thought it was Kevin Willard maybe just making some excuses and saying, because it was right when he got hurt at Iowa State, Kevin was saying, oh, of course, we just started to run a lot more of our offense through him. And, you know, wasn't sure if that was true or not. But now, in retrospect, it seems like, you know, he wasn't just, um, it wasn't smoke and mirrors. It was it was the real deal. So, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Sandro had a little bit of everything out there. He had a couple big threes, and he did his Angel Delgado impression with the three putbacks. So that was kind of – that was one of the main backbreakers for Villanova, I feel. And I totally agree with you. They had the chance to grab the rebound and, you know, prevent that, you know, second, even third opportunity for Mamu to score, but he still came up there. And I – and I think that was a perfect homage to Angel because I guarantee he probably did that to him a lot in practice uh, when Angel was a senior. Mamu was just a timid freshman. But this team as a whole has really come into themselves and gotten into their groove. They're not cocky. They're confident. And they're playing that way. Um, but... Now, I know that Xavier game a couple weeks ago was just ugly from the jump. Um, uh, from covering that game, um, you know, obviously, you can't be happy with having a 10-game win streak come to an end the way that it did. But uh, kind of take me through what the locker room was like after that loss and uh, from watching this team in the last couple games, how you saw every uh, how you saw them flip the switch, really. Yeah, it was between the Xavier and really the DePaul win right before it, just a couple of days before it, it seemed like there was a slight mid-season hiccup, I guess. You know, at the the after the DePaul game, Miles and Kevin, they were kind of – you would have thought they lost the game and, you know, they didn't play that well. But it was just a weird vibe and Kevin kind of hinted at um, 
you know, just being some, you know, a midseason, they needed to be refreshed. So, and I mean, they've certainly done that away from home. So I, I wonder if that was kind of the key was just getting away from that three game um, homestand and just kind of, you know, getting thrown into it a little bit. But yeah, it's, they've certainly rebounded nicely from that. Um, you know, if that's going to be the hiccup, then I'm sure most fans will take it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of, I mean, based on everything, you know, the stats, if you look at that game, I mean, getting out rebounded 51 to 22 and Tyreek Jones going for 19 and 18 that day. I mean, the better team won, simple as that. And now Xavier's finally got that look again of, being a potential NCAA tournament team. I mean, they're on a three-game win streak right now. Um, but uh, before I forget, I definitely got to ask you, um, obviously, Seton Hall has had such horrible luck against Villanova up until Saturday and uh, towards the end when you kind of got the sense that Seton Hall had this one in the bag. Um, uh, from your perspective, obviously, you covered this team for quite a few years now and you were following them well before that. Uh, what was it like just kind of, you know, taking in the moment and seeing Seton Hall fans that made the short trip to Philadelphia rally behind this team and be vocally supportive in the final minute? Yeah, it was kind of rewinding back to the beginning of the game. It was I wasn't sure what the support was going to be like, and I couldn't tell until the first three ball or jumper whoever made it it was kind of okay there's the away crowd and you can kind of hear them at that point but um yeah for the most part it, it wasn't like Villanova or Syracuse or UConn taking over uh the rock it wasn't anything like that but there was you know the upper corners were definitely a lot of blue up there a lot of Seton Hall blue and um from a personal standpoint late in the game you know logic would have said that they had it in the bag. I forget at which point in the, the last minute or so. Logic would have said that they had it, but I kind of – I was going to tweet, you know, they're coming home to Jersey with a win. But personally, I was I was like, I don't want to jinx it sort of thing, even though – and then I saw a few national writers. They said, you know, Seton Hall is going to go on the win. I was like, all right, it's safe, it's safe to tweet it out now. So even <laughs> there's still that reservation that it's – you know, it was never quite – safe and it kind of wasn't i mean it it did get the four points and you never know uh there's four point plays possible and all that sort of thing so in the back of my head there was always that reservation just because i you know i guess that's 26 years kind of uh taking its toll so but yeah once so there i guess there was a little bit of uh anxiety all along the way and it wasn't as enjoyable as it could have been personally um but yeah once once the final buzzer hit it was kind of kind of surreal for probably everyone. I mean, I totally agree with you. And I, I mean, I'm in the same boat with you. I didn't want to jinx it at all. I mean, I knew that time was going to run out and Seton Hall was going to win, but I'm like, I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to believe it until it actually happens. And I hear that final buzzer go off and obviously it did. And now Seton Hall, again, they got a three game cushion with seven games to go. And Wednesday night, again, they get Creighton, number 23 in the country, at the Rock. It's an early evening tip. It's got a 6.30 start time. And originally supposed to be Brian Custer on the call, but it looks like it's going to be Gus and Raph. And funny that Raph's going to be in attendance on his bobblehead night in Newark. And the funny thing is, with this three-way tie between Creighton, Marquette, and Villanova, 
by virtue of the tiebreaker between head-to-head, Creighton would be the number two seed in the Big East tournament if it were to start today. And actually, the Big East tournament actually starts a month from today. Uh, So with the number one and two seeds as of right now, uh, what are you looking forward to with this matchup, and how are you looking and scouting the Blue Jays heading into this one? Yeah, so obviously Creighton's the lone opponent that um, Seton Hall hasn't played yet, so they'll play him twice over the last seven games. But I was looking up their stats uh, last night, and they're always good offensively, but they're actually the best, they're most efficient they've been since um, Doug McDermott was on the team in 2014. So I was pulling up their numbers and, you know, they're top 10 in offense now. And that's, they're pretty much, um, you know, they're really fun to watch on offense. So I think between them and Marquette, they're the two hottest teams behind uh, Seton Hall right now. So I can easily see those two guys jockeying ahead of Villanova and, you know, putting the pressure on a bit. So, yeah, it's another top 25 matchup. It's the first time the Big East have had five teams ranked since um, before realignment. So, you know, Big East is really on a high right now. And and with Creighton, and it's, I mean, the interesting to them is obviously they had a huge devastating hit to their roster when Jacob Epperson went down with that leg injury uh, during the preseason, but they've been able to adjust really nicely and playing a really small lineup where their center's Christian Bishop, and he's only six foot seven. And obviously, with Seton Hall, I mean, they're built on size with those two seven two guys uh, with Gil and Obiagu, and then Tyree Samuel at six ten. Um, so if you're Seton Hall, uh, how do you try to combat? the lack of size and more of the quickness that the Blue Jays possess and also their ability to, you know, score a lot on the perimeter. Yeah, just to touch on, um, you know, their preseason injury, it always seems like, you know, Greg McDermott pulls all the right strings because, you know, regardless of their ranking, I always feel like people uh, overlook Creighton and then they always come on late and they, they just always seem to, you know, gel as the season goes on. But um, in terms of their size, what I know about Kevin is he's probably going to go, and we saw a little bit of this um, against Villanova, probably going to go with Sandro at the five for at least some stretches because, you know, just shorter guys give Gil and uh, Ike a little bit of trouble. So I think we'll see, you know, conventional mind might think, okay, you have the size advantage. You're, you know, five, six inches taller than their center. But I think we might see a little bit uh, something that's counterintuitive and go with Sandro for a bit, especially now that he's um, really hitting his stride. And, I mean, Sandro's had plenty of experience, you know, last year playing the five, obviously, with a smaller lineup with uh, Enzi, uh, who's now graduated. Overall, I mean, the Big East has been just, I mean, obviously non-conference has been really, really good. Um, it, well, it was really good. And then some teams that were so good early on have kind of, you know, fallen off. I mean, the biggest examples being DePaul and St. John's who went to combine 23 and three out of conference, but in conference, a combined three and 23, which is just uh, no, three and 19, excuse me, which is just absolutely, uh, bewildering. Uh, and, and, but now with the biggies tournament only a month away, it's 
uh, today's February 11th. The tournament starts on March 11th. Um, obviously, Seton Hall won the Big East tournament just a few years ago in 2016, which that's the best team that Seton Hall has had under Kevin Willard up until this year. But this Big East tournament, I mean, if we've learned anything, anything can happen in the world's most famous arena in that tournament. So, you know, as you know, obviously got still a lot of regular season basketball to go. But, you know, if Seton Hall ends up, you know, securing the one seed, um, uh, what are you expecting with that entire tournament and, you know, some teams possibly – making a little bit of noise um, unexpectedly compared to, you know, a team like Seton Hall. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of uh, uncharted territory uh, again for Seton Hall. It's because that noon game um, that the one seed plays in, that's they've usually played in that game, but from the other, you know, the other side of the fence as the 8-9 the seed. So it's going to be a little bit uh, – adjustment there but that I think that gives them a major advantage because of such quick turnaround for the opposing team but yeah I think it really can go it's going to depend on matchups and it can go either way between really the top five five schools I think um you could almost pick a name out of out of a hat and any of those five teams can win but yeah I think it's going to come down to matchups and how those seeds might fall and um but yeah it's going to be weird Seton Hall being the favorite going into that, and it seems like what it's going to be. And with this Seton Hall team, I mean, obviously, this is the best they have been. Again, they haven't won the Big East regular season championship uh, since 1993. And, you know, we touched on the fact that they won the Big East tournament back in 2016. And obviously, I mean, based on, you know, their track record so far, I mean, this is probably the best team this year that, uh, you've covered uh, during your time on the beat covering the Pirates. Um, so uh, what are you seeing overall from uh, this team that's making this group so special compared to a lot of the other teams in prior years during your during your coverage? Yeah, just speaking of like off the court sort of um, personalities, it it's definitely the best team in that respect, too. I mean, com- just comparing to 2016, you kind of had Derek Gordon, your sort of, um, you know, good quotes and vocal leader. But he even said, he, you know, he's like, I'm not natural at that. That was just, he was just good at adapting and taking on different roles. But um, you really have Miles, who is that and then some. He's a natural, seems like a natural um, leader and natural uh you know, dealing with the media is very, very kind and always saying, uh, you know, have a good night, have a safe trip home, which is from what other people have told me, not, not the standard. That's not the, um, that's going above and beyond in terms of player interaction. So in that going from the top down, this seems like all the other guys are following miles lead and they're really, you know, they're kind, they're engaging. And it just seems like, yeah, off the court, it's really the most fun that we've had, you know, we being the media, have had engaging with the players. And we kind of saw that last year. Um, I think Jerry Carino and I were like, you know, this is – these guys are fun. And it was – and it seems been true, but they've really kind of followed up on last year's camaraderie and really taken it to the next level. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And um, 
obviously with March coming up, we talked about the Big East tournament, but in the grand scheme of things, uh, Scott Van Pelt even said it himself when he was talking with Miles last night on SportsCenter, this team has the look of a Final Four team, but, I mean, obviously that is, in a way, I mean, that is a very lofty expectation, but, I mean, the real the reality was when the season started, the expectation was to make it to the Sweet 16, which they haven't done since Shaheen Holloway led the team uh, to the second weekend and the East Regional and the Carrier Dome, not too far from where I live, back in the year 2000. So, uh, realistically, um, is this where where you see this team going? And, um, and in, in all seriousness... How? What is what is the ceiling for this team? Is it fair to say that the Final Four is that ceiling for them as of right now? Oh yeah, it definitely seems that way. If um, they definitely have that sort of potential, if um, everything falls into place right, I just feel a little bit more reserved than some of the national outlets or you know whoever's kind of beating on that drum because I do feel like. You know, Kevin doesn't have that second weekend experience yet, um, so he—that's a little bit of new territory for him, just as a, you know, as a coach. And when you're riding such a player, like you know, it's not like Miles is scoring. He's not a uh, a Howard. He's not scoring forty points a game and that sort of carrying. But you do have that sort of, um, I guess, centralized aspect to the team at times. But I really think they're starting to get away from that, as as we saw against Villanova, where when he went out, they actually kind of played a little bit better on offense in you know, some, some ways, and they had a better defensive outlook. So I think if they can really keep the progress when, you know, Miles isn't clicking and isn't on form and maybe he plays off the ball and it isn't quite that primary score, if they can kind of get that second look nailed down, and it seems like that's working with Sandro, we can get that second look uh, locked down, then they can. Yeah, they definitely have the uh, final four potential. And I, th- I think, I, I think for me at least, making sure that geographically having home court advantage is going to be not obviously not like necessary, but it would help them a lot if they did have, you know, the first and second rounds in Albany, and then if they were lucky enough to be put in the East Regional, uh, which would be basically right in their backyard at Madison Square Garden Arena that they call, um, that this team calls their second home, really. Um, I I mean, obviously not counting Prudential Center and then uh, Walsh Gym. Um, uh, But to finally to wrap this all up, something I was actually thinking about and actually researching, Scene Hall has the potential to clinch that regular season championship potentially outright at home, actually at the game that coincidentally I'll be at on February 23rd uh, when they host St. John's, all that needs to be done because if they continue to win out uh, that win against St. John's, if they were to happen would put them at 14 and one in conference and they would need everyone else behind them, meaning Creighton Marquette and Villanova to each lose at least once uh, in order for that to happen. So uh, how special do you think it would be for not only this team, but really Pirate Nation uh, to be able to celebrate uh, clinching the Big East regular season championship 
on their home court uh, compared to if they were to do it, let's say, you know, on the road or waiting for other teams to lose in order for that to happen. So it's interesting. I'll one up you. So after the St. John's game, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's quite a bit of, uh, I guess, shade that Marquette blogs and fans have been throwing, you know, Seton Hall's way just since that rivalry kind of sprung up a, a year or two ago. They've been actively rooting against Seton Hall. So it would be even sweeter in some ways um, if they were to do it at Marquette. But then I bet you some fans are probably rooting for them to clinch it at home, you know, senior night for Miles against Villanova. You know, you kind of don't want to leave it towards the end, but if you could pick one date, I wonder if that uh, Villanova, you know, home, uh, that's even a better date. I, I mean, that would be a better date, especially, again, Miles Powell's last home game. And uh, just to follow up, um, and since we're, we're on the topic of Miles Powell because he was on SVP uh, late last night, I mean, just the career that he's had at Seton Hall, the way he's been such an incredible ambassador uh, for this team and the university as a whole, and even the Big East and college basketball in general. Um, do you think that – do you genuinely believe that Miles Powell is going to be the next Pirate great uh, to see his number raised to the Raptors of the Rock? Oh, yeah, he's got to be. Um, we were kind of up in arms a little bit when – that didn't happen for Angel a couple years back. But in retrospect, it's like, all right, Miles is taking it to the next level and pretty much across the board. And I think it was Isaiah Isaiah Whitehead that just kind of was beating that drum on Twitter. He's like, I think he was calling for his jersey to go up, uh, you know, first game next year. So, yeah, it would be he's in, he's in DeHair's, um category for sure. I mean, it would be. Yeah, it would be robbery not to not to raise his number to the rafters. So that's a foregone conclusion in my head. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. I still think Angel's got to get his just due in due time. I mean, I the way that he he had his college career turn out. I mean, I think he'll he should and will get his number retired just in a matter of time. I don't know how long it's going to be, but I think it should happen. But uh, with Miles, uh. And you mentioned Terry DeHair. I mean, it's going to take a lot for him to break the all-time scoring record, but if this team can make a really deep run into March where they can make it to the second weekend and potentially a Final Four, then I don't, I won't have any doubt, especially if he goes off for monster games in the Big East and NCAA tournaments, that Miles Powell is going to be the new scoring king in the history of Seton Hall basketball. But Chris... Always appreciate your insight. Always loved your work for Seton Hall covering them. It was a pleasure talking to you, and I am really looking forward to seeing you in a couple weeks at the Rock when the Hall goes up against the Johnnies. All right, Tim. This is fun. See you then. All right, Chris. Thanks again. Welcome back inside the Igloo. And joining me now, he is one of the rising stars in the world of college basketball Twitter. Accumulate quite the following of well over 12,000 people in such a short amount of time, too. Just an in incredible college basketball content creator and tweeter. Um, hailing all the way from the bluegrass state of Kentucky, Jake Atkins. Jake, it is an honor and pleasure to have you on, my man. 
Oh, I'm glad you, uh, you're you having me on tonight, Tim. Well, I mean, I, it's more of an honor for me to have you on than vice versa, you know. But let's, um, let's kind of talk about you first before we talk about uh, Big East hoops. Um, how are you able to, you know, generate uh, – such a strong following uh, in such a short amount of time. And uh, where did your love of basketball really come from? Well, Tim, there's three things that um, I really believe have helped me. And the first is consistency. And um, what I mean by that is tweeting uh, several times a day, every single day of the year. And to be consistent, I think you got to love what you do and you're talking about. So, um, just for example, and and I'm not meaning to disrespect or anything, but um, if I was covering, I don't know, like soccer or something, you're not going to get, you know, tweets every single day of the year, multiple times a day from me. But I love basketball and I always have. So, I don't feel like it's a chore to, you know, get on and talk with people about basketball. And the second is I kind of had to lose the ego a little bit. And what I mean by that is I, I see a lot of these people, they, they're wondering um, how to grow, and they're wondering why nobody's following them. And I see they have like 300 people that are following them, and they're following like five people. And I'm like, you're wanting to grow, but you're not willing to, you know, follow, get in, really engage with the Twitter community and, and get out there and and look up new people and follow them and talk with them. And the third is, I think, Twitter is all about dialogue. And what I mean by that is I don't want to just get on and just be talking into a vacuum, per se. So I just want to, um, you know, the best the best way, I think, to grow is to give your opinion and then ask for somebody else's because you, you get into – you ask a really good question about college basketball and there's millions of people out there that love college basketball. So you, you look down and, and you see a hundred people have replied. And when people reply, that's going to pop up on someone else's page. So just for example, uh, I don't know, like Jeff from accounting at work, he sees that him and management um, has replied to Jake from KY's tweet well, he's going to get curious as hell, and he's going to say, well, what's, he, what's he replying on this for? What's he talking about? So he clicks on the profile, and then he starts to get – he starts to look at some of my other tweets, and I think that's really the key to growing is, is showing up on people's pages that are not following you to begin with. And I think another way that, – that goes two ways, not only asking those questions, but getting out and searching college basketball hashtags and um, commenting on people's stuff that you don't even know. And that can just spark that friendship. You, you never know who's on the other end. They, they want to talk about it just as much as you do. So I think that really helps a lot. And um, really my love for basketball, it started out at a, at a really young age. Being um, Living in Kentucky, you know, basketball absolutely rules this state. It, it's, it's not about football as much as, as people want to – I don't know, some uh, Louisville or Kentucky fans are, want to say that they're football fans first. And, you know, maybe there are a few of those, but the majority of people are basketball first. And 
you know, I just started watching out March Madness from a young age. And I would watch March Madness, and I was like, this is great. This is the best tournament in sports. And then as I got older and older, I, I started to think, yeah, this is great and all, but what if I knew more about these teams before they got in this tournament? Think about how much better that would make it. So I started researching more and more, and, you know, it really does make it a lot better. Um, you know, I see a lot of people say, oh, I'm a college basketball fan, but only for March Madness. And I really don't get that because you get so much more enjoyment watching that March Madness game if you know who's out there playing and how they got there. I mean, those are all really great points that you make. And, you know, social media, I know there's a lot of positives and negatives. I mean, a lot of negatives that are that surround it. But you're one of the few people, at least in the sports Twitter sphere, that – really breaks out the positive. And I mean, that's what kind of drew me to you in the first place. And then obviously with March Madness, I mean, there are the, the Fairweather fans that won't tune in until the tournament rolls around. And a lot of people just simply forget, and you're definitely not one of those people that forgets that there's a, you got a four months, four, four month long season just to get up until that point. Now, uh, speaking of, now obviously we're into the season really deep into it. We're about a month away from Selection Sunday um, as we you know, kind of move into talking about uh, the Big East. And at the top, I mean, now you have five teams in the top 25, and there have been a lot of storylines between some teams exceeding expectations and others kind of – disappointing in a way um so just a little over halfway into the conference season the big east um from what you've seen over the past few months uh what have been your biggest takeaways uh so far within the league well one of my biggest takeaways right now is how seton hall and arguably you know it the big east and the big 10 are the two best conferences in um college basketball without a doubt I don't think there's any question in that. Um, whichever one you want to say is the best, um, it's okay with me. But Seton Hall with a three-game lead in this tough of a conference really jumps out to me. Ten and one in conference play. Um, and it just – what really jumps out to me is how much they've improved from last year. And I think, Tim, I think we might look back in a couple months and say – and this is crazy to say – but maybe Miles Powell's concussion might have been the best thing to happen to this team because when he set out them games, I think several of the role players that um, would normally defer to Miles, and, you know, they still defer to him a little bit. Obviously, he's, he's a first-team All-American. But they really gained um, that leadership experiences in, that, in those games without him. And I think that's extremely important when it comes to March when some teams are going to really hone in on him and try to take him away. And um, that that uh, home win, I believe it was, against Maryland was just absolutely – I mean, that, that impressed the hell out of me from Seton Hall. And, um, you know, something else that's jumping out to me right now is Nova is on a three-game losing streak. And that really surprises me because this is usually, you know – the Big East is usually Nova's playground. And, um, you know, I'm not worried about them necessarily. 
in the long run. Um, I think they're going to figure it out. Jay Wright, he's a top five coach in college basketball. Um, I really like Gillespie. Um, when they're on, you know, they got they got the win over Kansas earlier in the year. So I think I think they end up figuring it out. But you know, that's just surprising to me to see a team like a powerhouse like Nova um, losing three straight games. And you know, that just speaks to how tough this conference is. Um, you, you play anyone in this conference. It, it's not a it's not a gimme. It's not an easy win. Um, heck, even Providence, who was absolutely horrible in the non conference, has came out in conference play and and look competitive. Yeah, I mean, I mean, some of the teams that they lost to. I mean, Penn, Long Beach State, the College of Charleston. I mean, some of these were bad losses, but yet somehow. Here they are at six and five in conference. And then you also have Xavier who started off in conference so slowly losing six of their first eight. Now they're on a three game win streak and starting to get back into the conversation of being in the NCAA tournament. I mean, they were away from the bubble. Now they're back on it in, in that fringe area, you know, between last four in first four out according to a lot of bracketologists um, but let's kind of talk about the big game that happened over the weekend, Seton Hall, Villanova in Philly. And as everybody knows at this point, Seton Hall was able to leave Philly with a big road win. That's the first time they had beaten Nova in Philly since February of 1994. And I guess it just shows, you know, how special of a season this pirate squad is having. Um, but uh, we were talking before about how you watched that game from start to finish. Um, what did you learn most uh, from that game? Well, what I learned from that game, one is, and and you're more familiar with Seton Hall from last year, probably the one I am, is how much better is this team on the defensive end this year as opposed to last year? I think it's just I think it's just phenomenal. Um, you got two basically twin towers down low in um, Romero Gill and and Ike, and you know they don't play together a lot, um, but that's just they're just phenomenal rim protectors. And something that I really took away from this game is yeah, Miles Powell he, he he's great and all he he's first team All American, but how about the play from Mamu down the stretch? You know, it seemed like in that second half, it was just he wanted that more than anyone on the court, I think. And and I think he really, you know, nobody was stopping him in the second half. I, I mean, they were – I mean, this is a 6'11 guy who plays like a guard, and he even sh- – he shot it like a guard on Saturday. I mean, knocked down a couple big three-pointers, and then he had one sequence, I mean, where he got three rebounds in the putback is – a bit of a nod um, to the guy that mentored him when he was a freshman while this guy was a senior, Angel Delgado, a guy that you really liked watching from Seton Hall uh, beforehand. Uh, so, <clears throat> again, Seton Hall 10-1 and one in the biggies, as we mentioned before. But how about this now with now five in the top 25? That's half the league. With obviously Seton Hall, Nova, and top of that, Marquette now in the top 25, number 18. And then he got Butler 
and Creighton as well. I mean, this league is has just been proven to be loaded. Uh, but realistically, um, how many teams do you think from the Big East are going to, A, make the NCAA tournament, and B, how many do you legitimately see possibly making it past the first weekend and into the Sweet 16, and even further, perhaps? Well, that's a great question, Tim, and I was I was actually really thinking about this a lot earlier. And I think the Big East is ultimately going to end up getting seven out of the ten, ten teams in the um, big dance. I think, obviously, unless they win the conference tournament, I think DePaul – uh, St. John's and Providence are going to be on the outside looking in. I think Georgetown barely makes it. Um, and I think, you know, to answer your question, I think um, I think all five of those top 25 teams can make it to that second weekend. And I think all five are legitimate Final Four contenders. Um, and looking at those five, though, out of the Final Four contenders, there's really only two that I can see winning the whole thing. And that's Seton Hall and Villanova. Um, but uh, yeah, w- w- where are you at um, with the Final Four contenders? Well, I I, I think Georgetown's going to continue to slip up a little bit, especially if Max Mac McClung's absence is extended even further. I mean, he's now missed the last uh, three games with that foot injury. Um, I think Georgetown's going to barely miss it, but. Everyone, I mean, from obviously Seton Hall, Villanova, Butler, Creighton, Marquette, and then Xavier, I think, is going to do enough to make it into the tournament. And then, in terms of making the second weekend, uh, it, it's tough, but I, I genuinely think I only see four of those teams making it uh, possibly to the second weekend. The only one out of those five that I am, I'm omitting is Marquette. And I think the reason why is because if Marcus Howard is off, I don't know how much trust I can have in guys like Kobe McEwen, Sakar Annam, and even Brendan Bailey to an extent. They're not going to have enough to, you know, overcome two obstacles uh, before the Sweet 16. I just don't see it happening. I think Butler has the defense to do it. They're obviously not as great defensively as they were you know, in the first 16 games of the year. But obviously, Seton Hall and Villanova are the the glaring top two. And then with Creighton and their small ball lineup and the way they shoot it, I mean, if, they, if they're on fire, they can be anyone on any given night. And there's a reason why they're tied for second in the conference right now. Uh, and then legitimately for the Final Four, I don't – I just genuinely believe Seton Hall out of that group is the only legitimate – Final Fork and Center, and it's not a knock on Villanova. I, I, after this weekend, I, I don't in the last three games really. I, I think they've kind of gotten exposed a little bit, and to me, I, I think if a smart cerebral team can scope that out and expose it, then they're going to be in big trouble, unfortunately. And as for Seton Hall, I mean. With Romero Gill, I mean, he's such an X factor. And the reason why is because, I mean, obviously, everyone knows what he can do at defense. I mean, this is a guy who can block, you know, multiple shots a game every single time he goes out there. But it's that added presence in the paint offensively. He's actually got a post game, and it's pretty good, an an underrated part of his game. 
And to have a 7-2 guy be that skilled on both ends of the floor, that is scary. And, and this is a team that can, you know, pushing it a little bit, they can still go 10 deep. But you have eight solid players um, on that Seton Hall rotation, in all honesty. And you, and Miles Powell finally has that supporting cast that he kind of lacked a year ago. And I'm, I mean, and I know I'm going to sound a little biased because I was a Seton Hall, wasn't still am a Seton Hall guy, but like, at least I got the facts to back it up. So, I mean, that's how I kind of stand with everything. Um, but uh, let's kind of talk about, I mean, I, and how balanced everything is. I think it's a microcosm for how this entire college basketball been, really. Um, so, compared to, you know, past seasons where there are teams that, you know, just stand out above the rest and having a limited number of legitimate national championship contenders, um, where's this one stack up? Uh, for you personally and your experience of watching and following the game. Oh, man, this is this is without a doubt the craziest season I've ever watched as a college basketball fan. And um, when people say um, – when people are talking about the parity this year in college basketball, um, they're, they're absolutely hitting it on the money. Um, just looking at how many different number one teams there's been um, looking at, you know, every single weekend there's a there's three, four, five upsets usually. And I, I think, you know, to start out we were saying, man, this is this is a crazy weekend. This is this is like madness. And you know, now I'm starting to get away from that because, you know, is it really a crazy weekend if we're seeing it over and over and over and over again? It's just becoming the norm this season to see, you know, three to four to five ranked teams all lose to heck unranked teams in, in one weekend. And um, looking at most years, I think you have – you normally most years have like four to six dominant teams who are like almost head and shoulders above everyone else. And at this point, you know, I was just talking earlier, heck, there's 10 to 12 teams where if they win at all, I would legitimately not be shocked at all if, if you know, t- upwards to 10 to 12 teams, if I saw them, you know, be the last team standing, I'm not going to be shocked at all if that happens. And just thinking about how crazy this season is, I just want to talk a little bit about San Diego State and Dayton, um, some little schools that don't get mentioned a lot in most years. And, heck, um, before this year – um, in most seasons, the average I, – I know for a fact the average college basketball fan probably couldn't name you one player off either one of their teams. And this year, both of them are in the top ten and I think are legitimate Final Four contenders and um, national title threats. And it's just been awesome what San Diego State's done because Utah State was pretty much the unanimous um, favorite to win the Mountain West. And now they're sitting there undefeated right now. Malachi Flynn, I think you got to start talking about him. He's he, he's an All-American. I don't know whether that – I don't think he's first team, but I think he's he's without a doubt either second or third team All-American. And Obi Toppin from Dayton, man, he that kid is fun to watch. And I think seeing a guy from the A-10 
be in the National Player of the Year talks. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think he's going to end up being the National Player of the Year. But just the fact that a player for Dayton that plays in the A10 is even in that conversation for National Player of the Year is awesome. And you know, he really deserves it. He's he's balling out every night. He's affecting the game on both ends of the court. He he doesn't take plays off defensively. He's a great defender, um, and he's athletic as hell. He can shoot the ball. He plays with confidence, and it's just going to be awesome seeing someone from A10 be a lottery pick. It really will be. I mean, I mean, honestly, I think John Moran uh, gave those mid-major guys hope that they can, you know, be, you know, like a legitimate legitimately considered to be not just a lottery pick, but could go potentially in the top five. And I know since I've been, I've been doing brackets literally since I was in like kindergarten, but I feel like this year compared to every year before this, this is going to, for me at least, it's going to be an absolute nightmare. I don't know how you feel about that. Oh yeah, exactly. Um, Filling out my bracket. I just as, as John Rothstein says, um, you might as well keep something close to burn it because, I mean, every year my bracket, you know, I think someone said recently, I think they said, the more you know, the worse off you are. And, you know, in a way, I kind of believe that because you look at the people that end up um, staying um, perfect throughout the first several games, you know, half the time it's people that don't even watch the sport and they just say, oh, I'm going to pick this team because I like their colors. I like this team because they're mascot. Well, um, this year, I, my bracket is just going to be absolutely horrible. We think we can predict it, but, you know, there's no predicting this year. And, and anybody that thinks they can is just is sadly mistaken. And um, But, man, I'm just excited for it. I, I think there's so many teams that have a shot to get to that second weekend, more so than years past. And I think it's going to make for some really good games. And, you know, there's going to be some Big Ten teams that are that have kind of ugly records and might get seated, you know, towards the heck nine or ten range when in reality they're probably like a top 30 team in college basketball. And I think that's going to make for some, um, you know, I wouldn't even really call that an upset then because I mean, they're that good. But um, we're going to see some – I think we're going to see some higher seeds in the Elite Eight as a result of that. I, get, I mean, I could totally see that, too. I mean, there's only been a handful of double-digit seeds that have ever even reached the Final Four. I mean, and matter of fact, we had one recently with Loyola Chicago a couple of years back. Um, but um, uh, speaking of, you know, the, ma- uh, the magic of March Madness, uh, obviously one of the more memorable runs was with Cardiac Kemba and UConn in 2011. Um, and honestly the way that he took over games dating back to that Big East tournament that year, I mean, who could forget the step back he hit on Gary McGee for Pitt in the quarterfinal round? I remember I was a freshman in high school watching that as it happened live in, I think it was ninth period study hall. Um, But uh, just the way that he took over games, I see so much of that in Miles Powell, what he could do with this Seton Hall team. Uh, um, do you see that comparison as well? Exactly. And and I think anybody with eyes um, can see that, um, if they're paying attention at least. Uh, Miles Powell, when he gets hot, um, 
I don't think there when he gets hot, there isn't anybody better in college basketball. Let's just put it that way. Um, Marcus Howard, as great as he is, I'm taking Miles Powell over Marcus Howard uh, ten. I'm taking him over Marcus Howard ten times out of ten. I, I'm sorry, Marquette fans, but it's just the simple truth. And um, I think uh, in March, if if Marquette, if um, if Miles um, Powell gets hot. I can see him winning a game pretty much by himself down the stretch. But, you know, the good thing is he – I'm not sure he really has to. You know, he may win one, you know, pretty much by himself going down the stretch. But he's got those guys now like um, Quincy McKnight and um, Mamu and Romero Gill um, and Roden to where I think um, his supporting cast is, is really going to show up big time. And um, I would be, I'd be pretty surprised if um, Seton Hall is in Atlanta. Lofty expectations, but I think they're more than reasonable, to be honest with you. And uh, uh, finally, as uh, we wrap this up, obviously uh, we're not too far away. Again, I mean, Selection Sunday is obviously coming up fairly soon in just a few weeks. But the week before that is, in my mind the best conference tournament in all of college basketball. And it's, and the reason why, I mean, I could just tell you why that is in just three words, Madison square garden. Um, as a college basketball fan, I don't, um, have you ever, I know, I, and obviously I know you're from, uh, from Kentucky, but have you, um, have you ever kept an open mind to possibly just experiencing all the craziness that is the Big East tournament in the world's most famous arena. Oh, exactly, without a doubt, man. And um, and you know, I have a bucket list for uh, venues I want to um to get, end up traveling to in college basketball um, before I end up dying. And you know, at the top of that list is um, Cameron Indoor Stadium, Allen Fieldhouse, and right up there near the top is Madison Square Garden. Um, and like you mentioned, for the I, I would like for it to be for the Big East tournament. You know, I don't want to go to Madison Square Garden to watch the Knicks get beat by forty. I want to go to Madison Square Garden to watch, you know, um, maybe the best conference tournament in uh, college basketball. And you know, it seems like every single year that there's always something crazy that happens in that conference tournament. And it's just, you know, it's like a bloodbath. Like, any team can beat any team in that conference. And without a doubt, I would absolutely love to be uh, to go to Madison Square Garden for a Big East tournament. Um, uh, so to follow up on that and wrap it up, um, now I know you say that anything can happen, but um, in all honesty, what are you expecting um, out of that Big East tournament? Uh, is there any dark horse that could uh, possibly make some noise and – potentially be one of those, you know, spoilers and bid stealers that end up kind of ruining some of the bubble team's chances for making a tournament bid? Well, I think um, that team that we're looking at that could possibly do that is um, Providence. And we're seeing them start to play better now in conference play. And, um, you know, Ed Cooley, I really respect him as a coach. Um so, you know, they're going to go in with a good game plan into the Big East tournament. And I think um, I think they'll still be on the outside looking in on most brackets um, by the time the Big East tournament comes around. 
And I wouldn't be surprised if he really gets uh, his troops motivated and, you know, hammers in the point that you guys got to give it all on the line in each of these games or you'll be sitting at the house um, come the NCAA tournament time. And I could see them coming out and really playing strong. And I could see um, Alpha Diallo um, reeling off a couple big games. And, um, you know, I, I don't think this is going to happen per se, but if I had to pick a team to uh, steal a bid, um, I, I would pick um, Providence to um, do that. But um, a team that – another dark horse um, who I think absolutely is going to make the tournament. Um, and, and this team, I think, is, is more likely to um, win the Big East tournament is uh, Creighton. And um, when I look at Creighton, I don't think um, – you know, I don't think I can name – five better backcourts in college basketball than Creighton's backcourt with Alexander, Ballack, and Zagorowski. And if those three get hot um, from three in a game, which they're more than capable of, um, I, I think there's 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 no doubt in saying that they can reel off a couple um, hot shooting nights and end up um, taking down Seton Hall or Nova or Butler or Marquette and ended up winning the Big East um, tournament. Looking at their percentages, Alexander shoots 39%, Zagorowski shoots 37 and Ballack shoots 45 And th- And that's crazy. That, you know, that's got to be a top three to four um, shooting backcourt in the country. And, hey, I mean, sometimes hot shooting night, that's all, that's all it takes to take down the – the cream of the crop. So obviously there's a lot to look forward to. I mean, college basketball, there's nothing like it. And there's really no one on college basketball, Twitter, quite like you, Jake Atkins. Thanks for taking the time uh, to join me inside the igloo. Thanks for your biggest insight. And I'll, I definitely look forward to, you know, staying in touch with you and, uh, you know, just watching the madness that's going to ensue within the next couple months. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. All right, your icebreaker's coming up right after this. Welcome back. A big thank you to my guests for this episode. Again, Chris McManus and Jake Atkins, great guests as usual. And I feel like the guests are only going to get bigger and better from here. But it's finally that time. It's time for your icebreaker. Now... The Big East has definitely made quite a mark this season. I mean, in non-conference play, several teams made a lot of noise. DePaul had an impressive start at 12-1. St. John's was 11-2. Georgetown got some big wins, winning at Oklahoma State and SMU, who were undefeated at the time. And you also had some other teams, like Seton Hall, picking up wins over Maryland. Villanova beat then number one Kansas. And those were just a few of the big highlights. But in conference play, you know, things have kind of fizzled off for some of these teams, especially with St. John's and DePaul, since they've struggled mightily since their great starts out of conference. However, though, 
at the very top is where this league is at its best at a combined uh, well, it's not at a combined but but to have half your league in the top 25 in the nation that just goes to show how great the Big East is and it's obviously not top heavy at, at, at the very top I should say obviously Seton Hall has the upper hand on three teams who are in a tie for second right now Three games up on them with seven to go against Seton Hall, 10-1. and one, And then you also have Creighton, Marquette, and Villanova, each at 7-4 and four behind them. But to have five teams in the top 25 just shows how impressive the Big East has been this season. And I think it's about time that the entire country really gets put on notice for how damn good the Big East is at basketball this year. It's not just this year. Even in a down year, it was good the year before that. It was great the year before that one where Villanova and Xavier were both one seeds. It was great the year before that with seven of the ten teams making the NCAA tournament. It was great in 2016 with Villanova winning the national championship and Seton Hall defying the odds to win their first Big East title in 23 years at the time. And with Villanova's dominance in 2015... Still really good. Even in the first year in this realigned Big East, you still had the National Player of the Year, one of the greatest players in the history of college basketball, Doug McDermott, validating the league and making it great. And I still remember, you know, people saying back in 2013, you know, the Big East is dead. Well... In seven short years, the Big East has proven that they are far from dead. Matter of fact, they're alive and well, and they're thriving as they have gone back to the roots as a basketball-centered conference like the original one did 40 years ago. Not to mention great broadcast quality on Fox Sports, having guys like Gus Johnson and Bill Raftery, Tim Brando and Jim Jackson, the list goes on and on. And that's kind of how... The old Biggies had it early in the day when they got started off in the early 80s with a then newly born ESPN. You know, there's so many striking similarities. It really is. But for people to say the Big East is dead or ain't what it used to be, you know, I'm just going to keep letting them speak. But I know, and every college basketball Purist knows this as the truth and nothing but the damn truth. The Big East not only never died, it never left. Literally and figuratively. This league has to be pretty good at something for them to have half their league. Now I know it's not really saying something when it's only a 10-team league, but still having... Five teams in the top 25 in the nation still speaks volumes about how good this league is. And everyone talks about the ACC and the Big Ten and the other Power Five conferences. But I'll tell you what, the Big East has what none of the other conferences has. And that is the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden, in their back pocket. For life. 
And having that conference tournament in the world's most famous arena, as it has been for nearly four whole decades now, there's still nothing like it, and that's what makes the Big East stand alone as really, in my mind, the best basketball conference in America, bar none. And, you know, like I say, no shade, just facts. So that does it for this episode of the Igloo. Kind of a slow weekend coming up in the Big East with only three conference games on the docket, and then Villanova also has their final non-conference game of the season on Sunday as they're going to be facing Temple in their final Big Five game of the season. That's going to be on the road at the Lyakora Center again on Sunday as Villanova, again, they take on Temple. So, I will have a new episode up on Valentine's Day. Love might be in the air. For most, probably not for me. And I kid, I'm not saying that seriously. I'm just trying to poke a joke. Try to poke some fun at myself. But I'll tell you one thing. Basketball is in the air, and especially on Valentine's Day. It will be a month and a day from Selection Sunday. So the clock's winding down until we finally get to March Madness. And I hope you're excited for that wild ride as much as I am. But the ride we're still on in the regular season is still going. And it's still going to have a lot of ups and downs. And a lot of craziness, and I still know that the Biggies has a lot more to pack in before this regular.